This is Kevin Evans with the Chapter by Chapter Live class at Crossroads Assembly of God in Greenville. And we are uh, currently studying the book of Acts. And last week, after several weeks of study, we finished chapter 8, and we're about to start chapter 9. And it is a woohoo, because this is actually a demarcation point in the book. Uh, and I think, looking at this from a, a writer's point of view, I think when Luke was writing his rough draft, he began with chapter 9. Because you always start in the middle of the work, and you figure out where it's all going, and then you go right the beginning and the ending. At least that's what I used to teach my kids in class. Uh, and the first eight chapters are kind of preliminary, they, they set up everything that Paul's about to, uh, we're about to see with Paul, and it bridges the gap between Paul's story and the, the Gospels, which Luke had at this point written his Gospel, and so this is kind of, you know, the, the sequel, but he's carrying on this history. Uh, so he, he's put all of this work into preparing uh, for this story of Paul. And he's even foreshadowed him in the earlier things. You know, it, it, it's, it's... It's like Star Wars. Sure, sure. Because it has literary structure? Because, is that why? with the middle part of the story, and then you go back. Okay, well, when did he start at the middle? Oh, when he was writing it. A new hope. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, sure, yes. Okay, I'm with you now. I was a little slow, but I got it. I'm caught up. I should, I should lose geek points there. I really should. Okay, um, so I was all ready to jump into chapter 9 when I heard the pastor's sermon on Sunday and then his follow-up sermon on Wednesday, which followed largely the same themes, and he got my brain going, and when I get my brain going, I can't make it stop. It's really annoying, and I should probably take pills. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, we were, I really have to talk about the first eight chapters some more before we keep going in the night. And it's all the pastor's fault. And so, just recapping his sermon a little bit, and if he hears this, he's going to cringe when I say it. Basically, the, the theme of his message is that Eden was God's holy of holy at that point. And so, this is God's residence where God stays, and man lived with God in the holy of holies. And then when man sinned, that sin separated him from God and God cast him out of the garden. And he posted angels around the garden to keep man from entering back into the Holy of Holies, God's residence. Man is not allowed into God's residence at all after they were cast out. And so as we move forward and we get to the story of Moses, God gives Moses very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and the tabernacle has elements that reflect the Garden of Eden, and there is specifically, there's a Holy of Holies where God resides, and there is a curtain that separates that Holy of Holies from the rest of humanity because sin separates us, 
And that curtain has angels on it. It represents the garden. And of course, he drug that out for much further. Drug out is the wrong word, Pastor. I apologize. Uh, yes. Not only the holies, holies, but he also would fill the tent with the, they said the smoke of his glory would literally fill the entire tent. Yes, which gets to my point. Um, later on, we have Herod's temple, the second temple, so we're skipping a little bit here, and he's following the same basic pattern and has this Holy of Holies, but this is Herod, who's not uh, uh, doing this for any kind of holy reason. He's trying to uh, attain favor from his Roman overlords who judge a man's success by the big public works that they create. It's a political thing. And he's trying to do everything bigger, badder, and cooler than every other temple ever built, because that's the point. You have to be the best temple builder. So he elaborates on this design. The only design God gave us ever was this, the tabernacle. And he's built this temple, which is kind of encasing that tabernacle, but with more stuff around it. And he's built this huge complex uh, at great expense. And uh, he's built this big curtain that separates man from the Holy of Holies. And the curtain is uh, bigger than was the, the first temple. The first temple that was about 40 feet tall, judging roughly in what cubits were. And this one was about 60, which is an enormous curtain. It was made out of linen. It was four to five inches thick, wow. which is a brick. It's not a curtain, it's a linen wall that's being dropped from a massive uh, cross member that goes all the way across the temple. Uh, just the sheer scale of this curtain is stunning. Yeah. How much is the Holy of Holies if the, if the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there? Good point. There was not an Ark of the Covenant. There, was some other, uh, there were other furniture that disappeared after the Babylonian uh, captivity. But the Holy of Holies is the Holy of Holies because God's there, not because the Ark's there. Yes, and I think, and that's where what I've mulled over, because the Ark is not there, uh, the question I kept typing into Google is, was God in the second temple? And the Jews would say yes, that you can, can you feel the presence of God when God is present? I can't, well, yes. But there's, you know, hence the mystery. Did you think the Garden of Eden was a type of the Holy Holies or was the Holy Holies? Yes. Well, how could it be? Which one? I don't, I don't, why can't it be both? Because God left the garden. He doesn't leave the Holy of Holies. You, and how can Satan be in the Holy of Holies? I would like, I have a problem with that. I would like to <laughs> defer this question to the pastor <laughs> who <laughs> preached hard on it for the last two sermons, and it was awesome. Just before, because he's on the committee. I don't want to lose my papers. <laughs> I'm not again the idea. I'm not again it. Okay. But I do have some questions because the Satan cannot be in the Holy of Holies. That was my, that was my thought. And Christ, God left the garden. That oh. Okay, but let's go back to Job, right? I was going to say. I hate that. having a room full of ordinary people in my class. class. Okay, it's just, but it's just, there was. He went up to the throne room of God, room of God to say, I want to, te I want to tempt Job. It wasn't the Holy of Holies. Where was it? Holy of Holies was the specific spot where sin Okay, quoting my pastor is the residence of God. Let's just, I'll, I'll let's just call it the residence of God. Okay. So, uh, 
And so we get to the second temple and we have this massive temple with this massive wall of linen, which is artistic and it's got woven in angels representing the garden. And people who go on the other side of that curtain die unless they are, it's one of a few circumstances. I don't think anyone would die in that temple going behind the curtain because it wasn't truly the Holy of Holies. Temple that the you temple are ruining my good, wonderful point. <laughs> because the original temple, now you I said, reject this. You said that the original temple, no one told him. Yes, that's not correct. God told David how the temple was supposed to be built, and he passed it on to Solomon that this is how God wants the temple built. God had nothing to do with old Herod's temple. Herod did that on his own. So there, thus, there is no really holy of holies. And yet. God felt the need upon Christ's death to slice the curtain, this massive linen wall, in two from the top to the bottom. I think if there was no significance to the temple, Bill, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> oh, at that point, it's just symbolic. Right? It's a mafia message. He said I'm All right. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you this story and remind you of all of this because we were discussing the actions of the Sanhedrin through the first eight chapters and their behavior seems to be incomprehensible. And I think when you really look at what they were going through as Faithful people, I'm assuming some of them were actually genuine in their Jewish faith, being priests of the temple and standing in the presence of God, uh, and also knowing that they were corrupt, because I think they knew that too, yeah. you know? I don't think, you know, bad guys don't know they're not bad, they're bad guys. They, they, they make this choice. So, they are the arbiters of God's presence. They are in charge of the temple, and I'm working under the assumption that God actually resided in the Holy of Holies, Bill, and I think that anybody who came into the temple was aware that you were in God's temple. Well, they had to, they had that, whether they were corrupt or not, they had to purify themselves yes. before they went in, because if not, they'd have to drag them out. That's yes, why, that's why they were and they hell. died when they went in there, yeah. yes. Uh, and so, and so, they have power, and that power eventually gets incorporated into civil power, which gives them more power. They can have trials, they can throw people out of the, the temple, which is devastating to their social control, and it, they use that power, it, it, in a corrupt way eventually. Now, they have this usurper, one of these little cults, and it's not the first one that's come along that's preaching against them and telling them to get back to their old ways named Jesus, and they organize uh, a coup against him, and they have him murdered even though they don't have any reason to do so. But they took care of that little cult, you know, shake the dust off your hands, go back to work, we're good. Except that when he died, that curtain, this massive curtain that it would have, chainsaws couldn't go through, 
is ripped from the top to the bottom and the Holy of Holies is exposed to the whole wide world and anybody that comes into the temple is staring into the presence of God and by the way, God wasn't there. Every Jew there walks in and understands the significance of this. What happened to the Sanhedrin's power when God isn't residing in the Holy of Holies anymore? If you are an honest Sanhedrin, what does that say about your role in this temple if God isn't residing in the Holy of Holies anymore? Your role changed. You don't have any more power. Yes, and you have nothing to arbitrate. You, 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 you're kind of pointless. And so they were in shock. What are the seven points of grief? I, I'm, I'm depending on you here. Seven stages of grief. Uh, anger, denial. Denial, ang- I'm not getting them in order. De- okay. Denial, denial uh, anger, bargaining, uh, blaming God, uh, acceptance, and I'm missing one. I know, I'm sorry. So they start off with, with shock. They don't know what the, they, they, they did. This didn't happen. Oh my gosh, How do we, what, what do we do now? And then they, they're just kind of, uh, you know. Shock, denial, bargaining, guilt. Guilt is one. Anger, depression, sure. acceptance. And so uh, when they're, you know, the, the first thing they do, I think, oddly enough, was stitch it up. Mm. They repaired it. God destroyed, huh? It didn't say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. But the temple went on for another seventy years, right? And it, it didn't. It didn't go on with that curtain torn. I can almost promise you that they went on as they had. There was no curtain, though. There was, no there was a curtain. It was just torn in half. It was. You're ripped. saying they put it back together? Yes. It doesn't say that. An argument from Sodom. It's an argument from Gospel of Kevin. Because you're saying how else would they have been able to yes. do it unless they were they on for another 70 years yes. doing the same thing. Before practices. the temple was just utterly destroyed. It was, requi- it was 40 required. Years. It was, it was required. Yes. So they, they, they're in this position where God has left and they're in shock. And I think they go through those stages of denial. And while they're trying to figure out what to do with themselves, they notice that there's, oh, 3,000 people out in the courtyard in this massive complex listening to the apostles who are accusing them of murdering the Messiah. So they bring them up on charges, but then they say, you need to stop this. And Peter looks at them in the middle of his trial and says, no. And they let him walk away? Because there's 3,000 people there, and they are also, they have no idea where they stand. They don't have any moral authority anymore because God isn't in the temple, you know? And so they, 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 they don't have that backup that gives them the confidence to make all these declarations. And so I think that kind of explains, I'm sorry, I'm just going to turn this off. This is all the board members getting all chatty in the middle of it. It's church time. Okay. They need to be quiet. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so then they let him walk. 
And then later, we've got Stephen who comes in, and they bring him up on exactly the same charges that they brought against the apostles. And Peter told him off, and he walked. Stephen preaches to him and basically makes a case proving that all of their charges are not true, and they lynch him. This is a totally different approach, and I think we were at the anger stage at that point. I think as a group, they were kind of going through, how do we deal with this? And in the end, they decided to go on with their lives without any change, and they sewed up that curtain, and they continued to operate the temple with all of the profitable corruption they'd been running it for the next 70 years. Yes. So he's the teacher. So when they, when they, when the high priest went in there, they didn't have a teacher anymore. Right. And they didn't know how to access that. Okay. And there's, and there's plenty of preachers and churches that get up every Sunday morning. Well, right. Without it. Without it. Yeah. And Thank perform you. whatever they're going to perform. Yeah. Can I read something here in Hebrews? Okay, and you're going to refute everything that I just suggested, aren't you? No, I'm just going okay. to read something. It says, wherein God, wherein God willingly more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a con strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Well, that's Paul in Hebrews. So he's talking about there's still a veil there. Yeah. So I guess, like you said, they repaired it. And to be fair, I found two online sermons that are literally called Stitching Up the Veil. So you wow. know, I, I don't know. I think, I think that's a huge assumption, and no, that is not scriptural. But, but I think it's a fair assumption. Well, they were faced with the fact that you either say this veil ripped. Yeah. You either say God's God not here. It. God's not here. Or... or you say, oh, well, we had that earthquake, and I'm sure it just was an accident. Yeah. But Human nature happened. would stitch it up. Yeah. Say yes. Yes. You can't be like, oh, no, where did God go? Yeah. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> escaped. Not, not when you're in the breeze. No. 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 Oh, no, we got out. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, so, and now that the, 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 the veil is ripped and God resides in our hearts, and that's the new location of God's home, as I summarize the pastor's rather more complex sermon. God's in our hearts. Yeah. Okay, which brings us to chapter 9. Thank you for indulging me and letting me get that out of my system, because... We're Yeah, that was keeping me awake at night. Yeah, weirdly. Okay. Huh? Your life that you up at night. I'm afraid so. Hey, Judy, have you ever thought about the Holy Spirit? <coughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> we have had that conversation. Thank you. Uh, hey, Judy, have you ever wondered what life would really like? Yeah. <laughs> and her response is usually. <laughs> I realize I'm talking to myself again. Yeah. Okay, okay, exactly. Which brings us to chapter 9, which is 
uh, Luke's real beginning of the book. Um, so I'm going to read uh, section 1 through, um, where's my verse, 18, and then we'll take that. Which, what, 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 what? What, what, let, would you like to read? Yeah. Okay. Read one through 18. Oh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them to be prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for his name. How far am I going? Uh, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right. Saul is going to Damascus, which is in Syria, Jerusalem, Syria. It is outside of the country's bounds. It is its own city-state. It has its own authority. But it is also under Roman rule. So the Romans have conquered all of this area. And uh, they're existing under what they call the Peace of Rome. Uh, Basically, since Rome has all these crushed peoples, all those peoples have to get along because if they don't, then Rome will kill you. So, you know, and so as a result, commerce among all of these little uh, d- d- disparaging different cultural uh, cities is actually increasing. 
and they're, they're, they're trading with each other, and there's traffic going back and forth because Rome is not letting all of their sectarian conflicts turn into any kind of a bigger conflict. So as I was researching Damascus, I found several noted collegiate Bible scholars that pointed out that since Damascus was outside of the realm of Jerusalem, uh, Paul had zero authority to speak to anyone in Damascus, and this could not have happened, ha 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 ha. And therefore, since this is certainly false, the entire book of Acts cannot be trusted for its veracity. <laughs> And so I thought, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. And I dug into that a little more. And as, as it turns out, no, not true. He did have the authority to go to Jerusalem because the Jews were plentiful and powerful and they had assassins and they stabbed soldiers when they weren't looking. The Romans feared the Jews. Uh, and so they gave, they, they did what Romans do. They kind of established a political, they, they gave the Jews a little bit of power under their power. And by extending that power, they controlled them. They gave them enough room to flex their muscles and have their own little gangster thing. And that way they, they, they didn't have a rebellion. They were, they really invented organized crime, to be fair, you know. The FF proof I was looking for, and I can't find it. I know there's a section there right toward the beginning, and it goes back to what you are saying earlier about the, the bell and everything. Stitching up, they were more concerned with keeping their political power than their spiritual power. Yes. <laughs> Which when you do that, when you pick politics over spirituality, you lose your power. Yep. And I, Damascus is the most, mine also right here says Damascus was the most important Jewish community outside of the Holy Land. Yes. Uh, and, and I've got a little bit more on Damascus. But first, uh, there, there, there is actually a Roman decree, and I didn't write down the name of it. It was a little too wordy for me. But uh, basically, the Romans decreed that the uh, Jerusalem temple had authority in religious matters. And remember, they're polytheistic. They've got lots of gods, and this was not anything new. The other temples control their people, too. And they allowed the Jerusalem temple to control Jews in other countries under their dominion. And actually, Rome extended the power of the temple under Rome, oddly enough. And so there were, there were evidently a Christian group in Damascus, and they sent Paul with written authority so that he could go to the Roman authorities in Damascus and say, here, I'm the cop that just got sent from the temple, and I'm here to arrest those guys. It's like the FBI coming in and telling the sheriff, I've got, I've got to go take care of business, and they get out of his way. And so that's literally what he was. And so he's traveling to Damascus. Now, why Damascus? Damascus is what used to be the capital of Syria. It was a gigantic city. And... Uh, the little map that I have of Damascus here is really paltry compared to, to what this, the whole scope of the city was. It, it was comparable to Jerusalem. And it, uh, it was also a center point in commerce that Jerusalem never dreamed of being. There were all kinds of product going through in all directions. 
There were uh, uh, camel trails, and I, I, don't, I won't go into all the details. But uh, it was rich, and it was cosmopolitan. There were always people from other countries traveling through it. And if there was a huge Christian cult there, that Christian cult was about to be everywhere. And so they knew that. And so the first place we need to go is not these little Christians that are hanging out in Galilee. They're meaningless fishermen. What we need to do is take care of the ones that are about to spread this all the way to England. They got the, you market. Know. They got the market. Yes. Jerusalem was Washington, D.C. Damascus was New York. Yes, that's fair. So, so that's why he's going to Damascus. And Damascus is several days travel. And so he went to the high priest and asked for his letters and uh, those who belong to the way, which is what Luke starts calling Christianity. Um, and he's going to take them prisoners and bring them back. As he neared Damascus on his journey, so he is close to town, suddenly a light from heaven flashed uh, around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice, and had this conversation. The men traveling with Paul stood there speechless. They heard sound, but saw no one. I assume they didn't see the light either. They didn't say. Um, doesn't say they heard the voice either. It just says they heard sound. So you know. Right. Uh, this, is, this is Paul's conversion. And Paul wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. And oddly enough, he gave his testimony in his letters to the other churches. We have multiple accounts of this event. And in each one of those accounts, we get little details. It was noon. And so the sun is straight up in the sky. It is as bright as it can possibly be in the day. And Paul is struck to his knees with light. And he is blinded by light. Whereas the guys standing next to him are not. I think that's interesting. It seems like if an angel shows up and appears to me, then everybody around me should see him too, right? But it wasn't an angel. <laughs> no, it was Jesus. Right, right. And Jesus is the light, they said. You know, you read Revelations, it says, you know, he's the brightness of the Well, sun. all I had to say, Bill, is that if you and I were walking down the road and suddenly an enormous light appears in heaven that knocks you to your knees and you saw it and I didn't get to see it, I would feel left out. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> That's all I did was say Sorry. I, I think it's curious that they didn't see it. Okay, you know, so, so, so. Maybe they weren't meant to see it. Maybe they weren't meant to yeah. see it. God is God. I'm not questioning the truth of this. I'm just trying to figure out how the, all the rules work. Anyway, you know, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, all the shepherds saw the angels. They were there, you know. It's like. You go all the way back to Moses. When he came down off that mountain after seeing, being with God, he, he was so bright that they, they, they had to put veil, a veil over his face because they were scared to death of him because he was shining so bright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think that's quite the same thing. So. Um, so he's got his 
traveling companions who are also, I assume, priests that are going to help him in the arrest of all of these horrible Christians. And he gets up from the ground and can see nothing, and they take him into Damascus. And he is blind for three days, and he fasts. Now, he did just meet God face to face. I think I would have to reassess myself a bit. And he fasts for three days blind. God gives Paul an opportunity to think things through. He has no distractions. Curled up in a little ball in a corner of a house somewhere in Damascus, he's, he, he's thinking it through. Sometimes we have to go through that, that, that bottom. And, you know, he was analytical. He was. God humbled him. And he did. But it says, who are you, Lord? Like, how, what does that even mean? Like, just, he didn't recognize. But what? Yeah. But Lord, like, what is that? It, it can mean boss. It's who, oh, who, okay. who are you, obviously superior person. Oh, know. okay. It doesn't necessarily mean God. May I ask for the wisdom of the group? Hit me. It's something that I've been thinking about after I read this. Brimming with wisdom. Yeah, I know. I, I can. I can. <laughs> it's, it's waves are you know laughing yeah, at my yeah. feet over here. Okay. Um, we have a man who, after a murder, went to another town, went away from where the murder took place, saw a bright light, and then. Asked, heard a voice, asked the voice, who are you? Then later was delivered through means of a basket, which we haven't gotten yet. Is all of this supposed to point us to Moses? A man who, after a murder, fled the town. He fled. He didn't go for a prayer. His purpose was to escape. Um, saw a light, a burning bush. Heard a voice, asked who the voice was. But it all started with being delivered via a basket. From certain death, is there? And then, I mean, both of those in the the new, the Old Testament, you have to see Moses is probably the most one of the most influential people in the Old Testament, and wrote you know wrote the Torah, and likewise now we have Saul, Paul, who is probably the equivalent of the New Testament. Is that purposeful, or is this just me being the brain stuff you were referring to earlier? What was that? Hey, Judy. <laughs> I think it is significant because in Acts they go back to Moses a lot. So is that something we, you think we're supposed to see? Go ahead, Kevin. You got the answer. I think you you, you could go with two different explanations. I have two answers. How about that? Uh, one, it's a type, and uh, because we <clears throat> we see all these pictures of Christ and all these Old Testament people. We see pictures of situations in the Old Testament that reflect in the New Testament. And, and I think you could absolutely make the argument that it's a type, and I think that would be really fair. I also think that there's only one story. In all of human existence, there's only one story, and every other story is a copy of that story. And I, I have two hours of lecture to back that up. Okay. Including, yeah, don't you don't want to go here? It, it, it's, it's, it's Campbell. Anyway, uh, Joseph Campbell supports me big time. He's really hard read. Anyway, he's a hard read. Uh, 
basically every every Bruce Willis uh, cop story where he's jumping out of skyscrapers uh, is a retelling of the same plot points that you get in the passion play. What we see as human beings as a good, solid, fulfilling narrative is the passion play in infinite variation. And I, 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 I have no problem seeing, I think you could take both of those stories and they're gonna fit that same, uh, it's called the hero cycle. Vogler called it the hero cycle. What, what's interesting here is Bruce in his commentary <coughs> talking about a person he knows named Sendar Singh who was a Hindu person persecuting Christians in whatever uh -huh. country he was. It's the same story. It's, it's a, same story. He got hit down by a lot of light and he said, and he didn't know the story of Paul. Right. He didn't know the story of Paul. He just hated Christians. And he said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Right. And he became a Christian and told F.F. Bruce this. Because this is early in the development of Christianity. And I think, uh, you know, I think God leaves us alone for the most part. And, and we have free will. And he would prefer that we do things on our own, you know, We're come to him freely. And yes. And, and, and I think when he, he, he wants us to be honest in that conversion. But there are points. That, that where God needs certain things to happen in order for it to end, like he already knows it's going to end, and he will interfere in the course of human events in order to lead people to a certain point just to make sure that, that, that everything goes where it is. I don't think everybody gets a visitation from God or angels, but it's some do. There. There's a sermon in there. There's a sermon in there. But now here's, here's your question. Come up You're talking about free will. Did Paul really have free will in this choice? Yes. He could have been like all of the the the, the, the Sadducees who just ignored everything they just saw in their own yeah. temple but and carried yeah. on with regular business. He could have shook it off and gone and killed some Christians. Yes, he no, could he have. Couldn't. No, he couldn't have because he was blind. Mm. I mean, you can just do this in eight sessions. <laughs> well, but also look at all the deepers he saw the ten plagues, the river being done, they went through all that and they still rejected him. Yeah. There is free they will still in every so, so, yeah. But it's just, it's just a thought. I mean. He could have said no. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he would have stayed blind, I guess. Mm-hmm. Still had a choice. Yeah. Right, right. But I'm yeah. just saying his, his choice would have left him blind. Well, I think Paul was tremendously important to the growth of the church. And I think when you see all these other people where Paul, where obviously God is intervening in someone's conversion, eventually you're going to see a centurion in the next chapter where, where God got these two people together. They wouldn't have gotten together otherwise. But God's doing these introductions so that they can go off and become powerful in their own right in spreading this word. I don't think that centurion, if he wasn't tremendously important to the spread of the gospel, would have had that much intervention. Well, God, is, it's almost like he's a chess player. Yes. Because if you're talking about the Roman... He's setting up his... The Roman yeah. thing, because I know the question was brought up several weeks ago about saying God allows things to happen. Well, why would God allow the Romans to take over Israel and the Holy Land? The Roman peace was huge to the spread of the gospel. Yes, it was. They, the apostles could not have gone to all the different countries they could safely mm -hmm. and as freely as they did unless Rome owned everything. Yep. They had, God knows what he's doing, and God also knows what he's allowing to happen. And one thing that the Romans did tremendously well was build good roads. 
and suddenly you could travel mm. hundreds of miles wow. with relatively little effort. It does show with Paul, though, one thing it does show is God can use anybody, even a murderer. Yeah. He used a lot of murderers, actually. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. In fact, it kind of perverse them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, Paul, at this point, at verse 9, is curled up like a little baby in the corner of a room, you know, uh, uh, fasting and praying. And uh, I want to look at the next section. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he said, go talk to Paul. And Ananias said, what? The dude is here to kill me. What's wrong with you, God? Why don't you go to Putin and witness to him? Exactly. (laughs) You know, and... I think it's interesting. And everybody always makes a a big deal about the street called Straight. Um, Damascus was this ancient town, and all of the roads were built off of old trails. And so none of the roads were straight. They wind all through. The whole city is a bunch of winding little lanes. And the Romans came in when they conquered it, and they demolished all of these buildings, and they put a road down the middle because it was just un-Roman. If they walk through Damascus, they're walking straight, darn it. You know, that's the way it is. Infrastructure. Yes. And so uh, there's one road that you can see from one side of Damascus to the other on. And it's straight. And it's straight. So that's what they called it because that was weird. It was straight. It was the opposite of San Francisco. And, uh, exactly. And so, yeah, I've been there. I've, I've been there. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, you, and you can't, your cars. Oh, my God. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even. I moved slow. I didn't even go where he was intending. That was that was awful. You can't forget that. Now. Okay. You think Paul didn't get his total eyesight back? Because you know, I, I, you know, there's so many different things that talk about the thorn in Paul's flesh, and a lot of them think that it was his eyesight because he had people write for him. I have absolutely, completely decided that I know exactly what Paul's thorn in his side was, and I completely reject this theory, although it is a common one that you did not come up with. So what do you think the thorn in his He was stoned three times, I think. I'll have to go back and look. He was whipped twice before he began his ministry. You do not get stoned. You know, first of all, you, you don't really live through stoning. He was stoned three times, and he lived through it. it, it, it he, has, he is carrying some kind of constant injury from all of that beat up. You, this, this is not a guy that moves fast if he's been stoned three times and whipped twice. Uh, he's got heavy scars all over his back and probably everywhere else, too. I think he's being very descriptive. I have a thorn in my side. This broken rib healed wrong. That's what he's telling you. It literally is a pain in his side. And why would God blind him and not fix his eyes later? That seems rude. But the, the, point, of the, but the point of the message of Paul was I had a thorn in the flesh. It doesn't matter. And if he was 
It doesn't matter what it is. That's true. It's also true about most of what we talk about. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Faith. Please continue. Well, I was going to say, if he was whipped with like a cat of nine tails with all the pottery. Yeah, the Roman way. He literally had a piece of something in there that festered. Yes. You're going against Pentecostal charismatic doctrine. What? The official stance of Pentecostal charismatic theology, theology. Luckily, I don't have papers. <laughs> I have no problem saying that. I can say this. I remember when I was 20 years old, I had a, they, they diagnosed me with a hole in my heart. Okay? And Brother Leonard Wood, which was a, an old Assembly of God preacher, he came and he prayed for me. I went home for the weekend, and then they transferred me to Medical City. And when they did the final test to see how bad the hole in my heart was, there was no hole in my heart. But but yet I got left with the asthma. Now I remember a man in the church. He he liked to have a fit over the fact that how can God heal one thing and not heal at all? Well, I can't answer that. But the Greek is very explicit. It was a God-shaped hole in his heart. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, the Greek is very explicit. But we're we're off at. We need to get back now. We are. Um. So Ananias has to go witness to the guy that was trying to kill me? I wonder if he was trembling. <laughs> and I looked up Ananias. It's an extremely common name. Uh, and he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible other than this. He's just a dude from Damascus. He's, you know. He's going to go, that's the last time I fasted. Oh, my word. I know. <laughs> Are you serious? It's so, fasting gets me. And so he goes and talks to Hitler and tries to talk him into, you know, you know and, and, and shares Christ with him. And, and Paul is converted yeah. and is healed. And uh, it's like scales fell from his eyes. And I tried to get into that word and try to figure out if there was anything to it, and I found nothing. I thought of it, I always thought of it like cataracts. Y yeah. You know, and then they were, God removed them. Uh, obviously, it was quick. And so he yeah. couldn't see. It's like he took off glasses and then he could see, you know. And so he was instantly healed. And then here we have a Pharisee, a high-ranking Pharisee, who, dem who demands to be baptized after he embraces Christ. And, and this is disavowing all of his previous life and rising up again in this new faith. He, he, he immediately makes a public profession of this change in his faith. And he does this before he breaks his fast, which is also, I think, interesting. So they were in a, they were in a hurry. So once he makes this profession, they immediately baptized him. I assume Ananias did the and then, uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he broke. And then he broke. Where, where does it say he was filled with the Holy Spirit? Somewhere in there, I thought. And oh. be filled with the Holy. He, and be filled with. Okay, fair enough. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. He got the whole package all up front. It's like he got a 180 degree, really fast. A New York minute, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. And then he kind of parked there. Uh, Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And. Uh, 
I thought it was, you know, Ananias, this, just, this dude from Damascus, is the first Christian camaraderie Paul has had at all. I mean, he's been imprisoning and killing Christians. He doesn't associate with Christians. They've been scum. This is the first one he's actually, you know, talked to. I thought that was kind of interesting. There was a lot on Ananias here. Regular old guy. Regular guy. And so, for us. And, God and, can use us. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, they hang in Damascus for a while, and then Ananias drops out of the picture again. He What's goes it? back to his life, and he's not in the picture. Can you in imagine the, the synagogue? Because it says he went to go. Can you imagine? Oh, here's Paul, the big, the big guy from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Right. He's coming to speak to us, and he goes, oh, by the way, I just joined the play. I just joined the play. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, get the microphone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was ugly. I do know if you go on down further and talk about how bad the Jews still hated him, even though he was converted. They just, they never. Look at the Christians. They, yeah, they, they didn't trust him. Well, they were scared. I wouldn't trust Would you trust him? Yeah, Putin suddenly came to church today. Yeah, I don't drink anything in the community. Don't so glad you're here. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> with you? Where are the guns? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't trust it. Well, I was going to say, you'd have to have some suspicion. Is this a trick? Yes. If you're smart, you'd be going, okay, is this a trick or was this legit? Is hey, he just trying to get in to know all of us? Bringing people out from hiding. Mm -hmm. Hey, what's your name again? Oh, you're Kevin Evans. Yeah, I wouldn't right come running there. out. Peter didn't trust him up front. I, I think, you know, they've got to, trust is earned. Yeah. It's not something that's just given freely. You, 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 you've got to earn it. And so Paul had some penance to do, basically. That's the wrong word, but you get the idea. Him and Peter always had a love-hated relationship, it seems like. Uh, we're getting there. I think they were both headed in the same direction. They were very different people. Uh, I think Peter was a... Uh, they were like you. They were hard-headed. Type stuff. B... Well, they were both like that. <laughs> uh, they were. It was a type B, soulful, feeler kind well, of person. Sometimes people who are alike, mostly likely... My wife could not be married to someone like her. And I couldn't be married to someone like me. Yeah. Sometimes you're too alike in your personality, and that's what causes trouble. Paul is a driven type A lawyer. He's a lawyer. When you read all of his letters, he writes like a lawyer, you know. And and you know, I guess that's what they needed, you know, in order for this to really grow. We formulated much of our doctrine mm -hmm. from that. Area. And he understood all of the nuanced political bureaucratic culture in all these different cultures in which he was working. And so he established the church in a solid footing because of that. He was the academic. Yes. And I know it doesn't say this in the scripture, but he had to have gotten some divine wisdom from God. I mean, to be able well, to... Well, don't we all? To, to be able to accomplish everything he accomplished, he had to have some divine wisdom, you know. All right. So... We have gotten to verse 18, and we've gotten Paul saved, and Ananias, and he's hanging out in Damascus. And we're going to have to stop there because I'm completely out of time since I babbled on about temples and all. And we will pick up at verse 20 uh, when we come back, which is the beginning of Paul's ministry. And so signing off, Internet, bye.